Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Ashley, and we're the Theme Parkettes. Find out more about us, our store, our vacation planning services, and more at themeparkettes.com. Today, we have a really special episode for you all. Are you a Jurassic Park The Ride fan? Did you love Terminator 2 3D? How about Twister? Yeah, us too. A few episodes ago, we waxed nostalgic about these and so many other rides that we've loved that are based on films, some of which have been updated and others, which no longer exist. Yeah, we're looking at you, Back to the Future ride. Right. Oh, R.I.P. Back to the Future. Uh, Have you ever wondered how some of your favorite rides and experiences were built? I mean, sure, the first time that you ride it, you're all into the magic of the attraction, but maybe at about the 10th time, you start to wonder like us how did they do this well today we are welcoming a very special guest who knows a thing or two about building these brand-based attractions ashley there's a story about how you know our guest right jessica there is always a story there's always a story it's always a story so when i was in college i interned at the boston abc affiliates nightly news magazine and at that time the harry potter exhibition was coming to boston and one of the producers at the news magazine was going to cover it and she literally knew nothing about harry potter i'm pretty sure she said is this a gardening thing what what are we what are we doing oh no so i was like you know what i'm gonna volunteer to tag along with you make sure you don't say something you shouldn't and it was there that i got the chance to meet our guest who not only was the creative lead and the spokesperson for the exhibition but has also lived in the town i was going to college in what the world is small it is super super that on repeat somewhere (laughs) somewhere so I am super, super excited to introduce you all to our guest, Eddie Newquist. Eddie Newquist is an award-winning attraction designer, creative executive, filmmaker, and inventor with three patents. He is best known for his work on some of the world's most successful attractions, such as Jurassic Park, Waterworld, King Kong, Twister, Jaws, and Terminator 2 3D, which is probably arguably one of the coolest uh, stage show slash film attractions ever developed. He spent his career creating authentic brand-based experiences for companies such as the Walt Disney Company, Universal Studios, 20th Century Fox, and Warner Brothers, working on such brands as, of course, Harry Potter, Cars 1, 2, and 3, Frozen, Fantastic Beasts, Avatar, and Game of Thrones. He's currently a partner and creative executive at Mina Lima Los Angeles, which is the design studio behind all of the Harry Potter and Fantastic Beast films. Eddie, welcome to the Theme Park Gets podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. We are so lucky to have you here. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I have to know how the heck you get a career like this? What, what did you study in college? How did this happen? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's funny. It, it, it probably all stems back to my childhood. I come from a large family. I have seven siblings. <gasps> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, and, and my parents, I think probably just to make sure that we didn't you know, tear the house down, were very supportive um, for all of our creative endeavors. So growing up, we would put on little you know, showcases. We'd do little shows. We'd build haunted houses in the garage. As we got older into high school, we had you know rock bands and 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 did mock kiss performances. <laughs> yes. and, you know, ended up doing some cool theater stuff and a lot of filmmaking with Super Eight, and so they they just you know they just let us kind of go that route. And so in college, I studied communications with an emphasis in film, and I I just basically looked at it, it all as an extension of my childhood, and so. From there, you know, it just took off. I just kept doing the types of things I've been doing my whole life. Wow. Where, where'd you go to school? I went to Loyola Marymount, which is here in Los Angeles. And so then how did that cross over into the theme park world? Well, interestingly enough, um, I was always way into special effects, movie special effects, because I, I, I not only enjoyed as a fan, you know, films and theme parks, but I also really liked to understand how things worked and how I could potentially you know, duplicate things or be inspired to make other things. And I had the good fortune of interning at a company called ShowScan, which was headed by a special effects wizard named Douglas Trumbull, who had did who had done Spielberg's Close Encounters. He did 
he directed Brainstorm. He did the special effects in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh, wow. And uh, and literally, you know, my dream was to work with this guy. I had I had cutouts from Time Magazine of articles calling this guy the next Walt Disney. And and so I always wanted to work for Doug. And I was at school one day, and I, and I would run down to crew practice down in Marina del Rey. It was about a mile. And I, one of my friends said, hey, I'm interning at ShowScan. I know you're a big fan of this stuff. You should, you should, you know, you should join me. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I can't really get off campus that far. And he goes, Eddie, it's in Marina del Rey. You've been running past, you know, Doug's <laughs> building for the past couple of years. So I had no idea all the major effects shops at that time, this is the mid 80s, were down in Marina del Rey, a lot of the big ones anyway. And that. so, you know, they were doing films like Ghostbusters and all sorts of crazy stuff down there. And all the miniatures and, and just, you know, green screen and blue screen. And so I ended up interning for Doug in the first project. And so and ultimately they hired me. So my senior year of college, I moved all of my classes to night classes and I started working full time at ShowScan. And the first job that I got to work on was a project called Tour of the Universe, which was the first motion simulator ride ever created for a theme park back in 1985. And I was just I, I, I just kind of felt like, all right, this is this is basically my dream come true. Let's carry this forward. What park was that at? So it was based in Toronto. It was at the base of the CN Tower. And it made such an impact, I think, on the amusement industry. It was absolutely the exact inspiration for Star Tours. As a matter of fact, Disney Imagineers came down to our facility in Marina del Rey and looked at this setup that we had there. Um, and ShowScan was a unique process. They were, they were basically using film projectors, but it was 70 millimeter film. So it was that widescreen format. And they were shooting and projecting at 60 frames per second which is, you know, which was unheard of back in the day. But the image resolution was so amazing. Everybody in town wanted to see it from Steven Spielberg to, you know, David Lean, who directed uh, Lawrence of Arabia to all the Imagineers. So it was kind of a hotbed, you know, in the industry at the time. And sure enough, I thought, okay, if Doug is starting to get into theme parks, this makes good sense for me. And then Universal announced that they were going to build a brand new theme park from the ground up in Orlando. And I thought, hmm, this might be interesting. And of course, Doug gets called to do the Back to the Future film. What? So, uh, so I ended up, you know, loading up, you know, a, a Volkswagen Rabbit back in the late '80s <laughs> and driving to Orlando. And and I and I literally got there, and the construction site was dirt. Oh, and oh my for the next, Yeah, for, for the next two years, we built that theme park. There was about thirty of us who came from LA, who were all part of Universal. Studios creative development team. It was called planning development at the time and we all arrived in Orlando and 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 got indoctrinated in the world of construction and architectural drawings and everything else and started building the park So it was really it was an unbelievable opportunity kind of a once-in-a-lifetime and um, And from there, you know at my, my I, I just sort of stayed that course and worked with Universal for many, many years and, and on lots of other really cool things as well. That's amazing. The idea that, you, that I just can't even picture and then just to see it literally being built up around you. I mean, what was it like, like every day coming to work and suddenly you're seeing things that you can, you know, you could only right. imagine are suddenly, you know, they, they literally exist now. No, you're right. And it's funny because I was going through some old paperwork and, and, you know, we would get memos from Barry Upson, who was leading the project for planning and development. And it absolutely felt like wartime correspondence. <laughs> you know, it was it was very very difficult. We were really trying to do things that people had never done before, um, and and Disney was was obviously you know had had a strong established presence with the Magic Kingdom and Epcot Center. They also announced that they were going to be building the Disney MGM Hollywood Studio Tour. Uh, and they were going to beat us to the punch. They were going to try to open a year earlier. So there was a big battle between Universal and Orlando, uh, really a, a billion dollar battle that was going on in the late 80s uh, to open these theme parks. And, you know, one of the things I think that, that Disney thought we would be doing is kind of a nice tram tour and some stage shows. And because um, we really wanted to step up our game and Steven Spielberg was our creative consultant, we decided to create quote unquote ride the movies and do things like have, you know, a life-size 60-foot Kong and have, you know, boats attacked by great white sharks and have, you know, explosions and fire, you know, exploding around the tram in earthquakes. So we really tried to to step up the thrill factor and and appeal to that crowd and to that demographic. And um and and you know, 
it was blood, sweat, and tears all the way to opening. <laughs> and and even the opening was was rather challenging because not everything was working. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so you know, we learned a lot, but it was an amazing, amazing experience to to dive in on each one of these. And and as you were saying, you know, it must have been kind of a dream come true. I was like a kid in a candy store. Mm-hmm. I would literally work weekends and walk through the other attractions I, I wasn't working on. So my first job was the horror makeup show, designing and and creating that show with a great team. Um, but I, on the weekends, I would go and video, you know, ET and the production that was going on there, so I could help the producer out. And I would go over to Jaws and see how, see if the water was actually staying in the Jaws lagoon because there were leaks everywhere and if the sharks were working. And so it was. It was really, really dynamic. We just, I just want to let you know that we just did a Universal 101 episode uh, for people who've never been there. And we gave a huge props to the horror makeup show. Oh, thank you very much. Thank <laughs> we, you. I love that show. And I think it will be there forever. Unlike, sadly, a lot of the rest of the park, unfortunately, you know, from what it originally was, although it's, you know, it's it's exciting and and wonderful still to go. But man, that horror makeup show will will live forever, I think. <laughs> so well done. Yeah, well, thank you. I have a, I have a funny story about that. So um, we were one of the first shows to be complete. And uh, I get a call from the producer saying that Steven Spielberg was coming over and there was going to be a, a whole uh, film shoot basically uh, around him kind of reviewing the show and and you know walking through the stage props etc so I was pretty excited and he was the consultant across all of the attractions but because we were one of the earlier ones done I, I went over to host him and meet with him and uh, and, I, and you know he kind of walked through the lobby and saw the display cases and I've got a funny story about what was in those display cases in a minute but anyway so we get to the stage and I said, he said, so the lobby is kind of all the, the rare artifacts and the stage has a bunch of props and stuff. And I said, yeah, and we're going to bring up some guests and do, you know, the cutting blade with the fake blood. And we're going to have all sorts of great effects with the fly, et cetera. And he said, well, so what are all the props up top? And I said, oh, it's just stuff I found in the back lot. You know, really just junk. I mean, really the good stuff's oh, no. in the lobby. And he said, he points up to the top shelf and he goes, do you know what that is? And I said, yeah, it's just this, it's just an old head I found on the back lot. And he goes, that's Ben Gardner's head from Jaws. <laughs> oh, my gosh. oh, my gosh. He said, that's the head that pops out that scared a generation of filmmakers. And I thought, how and, and, dare you call it junk? Yeah. And so, of course, I looked more carefully at it. And, you know, and it was faded, you know, with time and the whole deal. But, of course, he's only got one eye. And I know the movie Jaws very, very well. I'm a big fan of Stevens. And I just thought, uh, well, OK, we're going to move that into this case in the lobby. He goes, good idea. Did, was it just a moment where you're like, this is probably arguably one of the greatest film directors, producers of all time. And that's, that's yeah, your was, conversation. He, I mean, him? he was, he was geeking out. I, I, I think it's because he, you know, he spent so much time on the back lot and, and one quick story when I was doing the makeup show, I, I started in, in universal Hollywood in California. And I, and I, because it was, this was a big priority, you know, theme park down in Orlando, they, they kind of gave us carte blanche to really dive into the history of Universal. And I was already a big movie monster fan. And I said, you know, I've heard stories that there was stuff buried, you know, behind mm-hmm. set streets and things like that from the old makeup, uh, horror makeup studios, you know, from Jack Pierce and, and the Westmore brothers. And so I contacted the head of studio operations and he's, yeah, there might be some back in the Western set. You could go through the London set. He goes, just, you know, people ask you what you're doing. Just tell them, you know, this was a gentleman named Bill DeSense. He just said, just sit, use my name and go for it. So, of course, I jump in a golf cart and I'm tooling around and dodging trams, you know, going through the back lot. And I finally got to one section. Um, I think it was over by the Back to the Future Square. And, uh, and I discovered a treasure trove of molds and casts that had just been stored in, in, in behind one of the set streets. And I actually broke one of the seams on the mold and Lon Chaney Jr., who was famous for playing the Wolfman, and his father was the Man of a Thousand Faces, Lon Chaney, who was the Phantom of the Opera and the yeah. Hunchback of Notre Dame. I found all of these amazing, amazing busts and, and practice heads um, that were used in life masks for the old Universal Horror movies. So that basically became our collection in Orlando. Wow. We had them duplicated and Rick Baker, the Academy Award winner, you know, came in and verified them and he helped with our show as well. So it was really 
it was really fun to dive in, you know, just even on that particular subject matter and, and do a little curating and a little bit of, you know, archaeological digs <laughs> at the Universal uh, Backlot. Well, and it's crazy to think, too, that, you know, the things that we we cherish and we, you know, put on literal pedestals now as as, you know, film fans and uh, pop culture fans that back then they literally were just keeping them like in a storage unit behind a, a stage yeah, somewhere exactly. I mean, for somebody to go know. take a golf cart and pick off the back lot. You're, you're absolutely right. And so that, that, was, uh, that was a big effort to really make sure that these were curated and archived and noted. And we duplicated a lot of them as well, but we, we sent you know, quite a few of the originals down to Orlando. So I'm a big believer in, in obviously film history as a fan. And, and the need to take care of that history and to be able to share it with future generations. So the Orca, which was Quint's boat in Jaws, was docked, well, the real one was docked right where the, the Jaws attraction was, you know, over by the Murder, She Wrote mm -hmm. sets. And they were kind of walking back and forth on the Orca all the time, not really, you know, thinking about that this is a, a pretty famous ship and should probably be taken care of. So mm. th there was one of the sharks, actually, that uh, the, the shark's name was Bruce in the yeah. films um, or, or on the set of the films, which was uh, Steven Spielberg's attorney. <laughs> and uh, they had spare sharks laying around. So one of them is actually going to end up in the Academy Museum here in L.A. when it when it finally opens. I think it's opening next year. So um, so, yeah, it's, it's great to see these collections being preserved and film fans can see them on these tours and, and at the amusement parks. It's, I think it's really fun. Eddie, you talked about all of these attractions being built kind of simultaneously. Once you finished with the uh, the makeup show, what was the next kind of big project or attraction you worked on at Universal? So it, interestingly enough, you know, we finished that, and I and, and and this was before we actually opened the park. That that show was finished, and so I was talking to different vice presidents at the at the theme park group, and they said, you know they said, well, you're basically done and, you know, we'd like to keep you on, on staff. I said, well, of course I'd love to, because I'd like to, you know, be here for the opening of the park, which was just a few months out. And they said, well, let us talk about it. So they went away and talked about it. They came back and they said, we're going to put you in charge of the creative in various areas from video production to audio production on a number of the attractions. How, how what do you think of that? And I said, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so, uh, so I ended up working on Jaws to get that open up and running and, uh, and implementing some of the fire effects and other things that, that, that ultimately really put that attraction over the top. Um, but then a big focus of mine also was King Kong, which was having a lot of trouble with the robotics as well as just the ride systems. And so um, an interesting story from that, they, they were really having trouble with Kong's voice because um, the gentleman who had done it in Hollywood you know, wasn't available. And they had tried a number of different sort of technological method methods to get him to scream and to roar. And, uh, and they were kind of at wit's end. And I was talking to the producer and he said, you know, what we've wanted to do is slow down the tape by half. So have, record somebody and slow it down by half, which gives it that big monster guttural roar. But we're not finding, you know, anybody who can kind of hit these notes and kind of take this direction. And I said, you know, I'm just going to throw this out. You know, I've I've been a rock singer most of my life oh my and uh, and people often say I've got a really high range. You know, why don't we give it a shot? And so he said, "Yeah, let's what? go to the studio and give it a try." So for 2 days I recorded uh I recorded Kong's voice uh at a very 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 high range and then what? we slowed it down by half and that's my voice or was my voice <laughs> in the King Kong attraction for all those years. Wait a second. Hold on. Are you are you telling us right now? Are you t are you telling us right now that you you are the confrontation? My mind is just blown right now. That you you're King Kong. Yes, <laughs> I guess I can. And if you guys would like, I will send you a snippet if you would like. No, I'll send you a yes. I'll send you one a, a small portion of the original Please recording, that would which be is very high pitched, and then and then I'll I'll send it, and then you guys can play back it what it sounded like in the ride, which is much more, more lower pitch. Oh but, um, my gosh, yes. Hey listeners, it's Jessica in the editing room. Eddie did send us that soundbite and I'm dropping it right here in the middle of this episode and you're about to hear it. At the first beep, you'll hear the audio from the confrontation ride with music. Second beep will be Eddie's raw recording and screams. And finally, at the third beep, you'll hear more clearly how they slowed Eddie's voice by approximately half to create King Kong's roars. Enjoy in three, two. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, it was it was it was it was crazy. It was a lot of fun, um, but that was just sort of one of the behind the scenes stories. It, you know, out of sheer panic, you know, we said, "Well, I'll, I'll give it a try. Let's see how this works." <laughs> I'm dying. I'm dying. That's so cool. It is so cool. Well, and also, I, I do want to do a shout out. I talk about a lot of these experiences. There was an amazing team. You know, I talk about sort of the thirty or forty original people who came from Hollywood, but even even the sound technicians, the audio technicians, the video technicians. I mean, we really assembled kind of a who's who team. Everybody pretty young and pretty adventurous, you know, at the time. Um, so I, I give a lot of tribute to John Maselli, Tony Maselli, David Kniper, the guys who did a lot of the recording and a lot of the music composition for, for the King Kong ride and Craig Barr, who was the producer of that, who went on to work on Jurassic Park. I'll tell you one other funny story. I was, uh, I was, um, on the radio and they said, Eddie, you should head over to King Kong. So I headed over to King Kong and walking through the, the main show area where Kong is off the bridge is Doug Trumbull and Steven Spielberg. <laughs> so it was kind of, you know, Steven I'd met through the makeup show, Doug obviously I worked for at ShowScan and, uh, and they were pointing at Kong. I didn't want to interrupt him, but they were pointing at Kong and really talking a great deal about it. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. So I go back. I said, you know, what, what are they doing in Kong? They're really like overly fascinated with the, the 60 foot animatronics. And the, the, a, a, a gentleman who was uh, one of the vice presidents there at the time said, well, I just got a script called Jurassic Park. <gasps> and it's a movie that Steven's looking at doing that includes life-size dinosaurs. And we're talking about maybe building those sets here in one area of the theme park and shooting it, shooting Jurassic Park, the, the movie, in one section of the theme park, you know, that's distant away from the normal, you know, traffic patterns of the guests, shooting it there, and then opening it up and allowing the guests in so they can go to the Jurassic Park theme park. But Steven is really struggling with how are we going to pull off these dinosaurs. So he and Doug wanted to take a look at the robotics in Kong, which were pretty much the most advanced at the time. And, uh, and Colin Wilson, the production designer of Jurassic is going to be reaching out to you because he wants you to send him some videos. So for several weeks, wow. I was in there, you know, taking videotape of King Kong, the movements of his hands and his mouth and the lips and, you know, how we were able to do this range and kind of communicating with Colin back and forth. And, um, and ultimately what happened was the movie budget and the theme park budget started colliding, creating this massive you know, basically, you know, cost that would have been, you know, the, the most costly film and theme park attraction ever built kind of consecutively, you know. And so ultimately, Steven decided, you know what, this is going to be too expensive. Universal decided it was going to be too expensive. So they went ahead with the film, which opened in 93, you know, a few years after we opened the park. And then sure enough, years later, I get called to do Jurassic Park the Ride <laughs> as a creative director. I'm thinking, gosh, this all just keeps coming back around. So, um, wow. but interesting story that they were going to make the film and the theme park at the same time and then open the theme park, you know, to guests. So um, didn't work out that way. And, and ultimately they did use some life-size animatronics on set for the film. Um, but, you know, with the, with the advancements of CGI and what ILM was able to do with Steven, you know, to create those dinosaurs, you know, really, really put the need for the large scale animatronics, you know, at, at a limited range. So kind of funny, kind of kind of an interesting story and plot twist there for, for Jurassic. <laughs> I'll say. And then that you ended up working on the Jurassic Park ride. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I um, you know, I had left Universal. So I was I, I, I finished Orlando and all my, my, you know, all the attractions there. And they asked me to come back to Hollywood to help do the expansion um, in Hollywood that included E.T. and the world of Cinemagic and a couple of other things. So I came on board to do that. And I started thinking, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've spent several years here. I should start looking at other things. Maybe I should get, get back into motion simulation. And I was offered a job by a company called iWorks Entertainment, who was really now taking the mantle that Doug had done with ShowScan and, and, and motion simulators. And iWorks was really taking off. So I joined that company. And it was an amazing experience. I met my wife there and the two founders, Don Iwerks, who was the son of Ub Iwerks, who, right, I was just who, who was, yeah. Yeah, who was, who is Walt Disney's partner and who drew Mickey Mouse. So his son, Don, and a gentleman named Stan Kinsey founded Iwerks Entertainment. And for a number of years, we were just at the, at the peak of, 
you know, providing these motion simulation attractions to theme parks all over the world. And then one day I got a call and they said, um, uh, a couple of the Universal executives have been talking and we'd like you back because we've got a couple of attractions we think, you know, you'd be interested in. So I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty entrenched in iWorks. I'd spent about four or five years there, but I'd certainly be interested in finding out what you're talking about. And so I sat down with them and they said, we'd like you to do Waterworld, Jurassic Park and T2-3D. <laughs> so I said, I, I said, uh, that's kind of hard to pass up. <laughs> so yeah. I, I had no idea what Waterworld was, but I, I certainly knew what Jurassic was at the time. And T2, you know, was a big, big hit, you know, for James Cameron. So I thought those two would be pretty cool. Waterworld, I wasn't quite sure of. So I left iWorks and went back to, to Universal in, in early 1995. So, so when they, so when Universal calls you, it says, you know, that they, they want to do this. I mean, what's, what is the strategy? Like, is it, is it somebody on the film side that says, you know, this film is really successful. We think it would make a really great attraction or how does that process even, you know, kind of get started where, where the decisions are, we're going to take this, this movie, we're going to make it into an attraction and it's going to be this kind of attraction, because obviously those three things are, are all very, you know, different in a lot of ways. They are. And, and interestingly enough, when I went back to Universal to do those attractions, I actually was given the task of, of being the liaison with feature films to look at um, the scripts uh, and, and to identify what would potentially be new attractions and, and new products and brands you know, that would potentially be blockbusters. So I, I, was, I would sit in, the, in, in a lot of the motion picture meetings They'd say, you know, here's a film summary. We're about to green light it. It's about Mad Max on water kind of yeah. thing. And uh, I'm like, okay. And, uh, and they said, you know, here's the script and take a look at it and see what you think. So I did that with Apollo 13 before, before it even went into production. I was reading that script. I did it with Twister. I did it with a number of wow. other films, uh, which was really fun. Um, but it was tough to, to, tough to try to gauge, okay, was this going to work as an attraction or not? And oftentimes, if, if it felt kind of right, obviously, I'd make script notes and I'd write up a couple of different concepts. I'd just start sharing them with the rest of our creative development team. And we'd start trying to identify what we think might work best. And, and Waterworld had actually was already in process, you know, when they told me about it. Um, I don't think I'm not sure they had a final script yet. But um, but yeah, I had to kind of dig that dig through that script and find the you know, sort of the right beats and what was going to work in that show. And then to come up with all the stunts because, you know, we, we wanted to, they used to have an old Miami Vice show there, a stunt right. show. And so that was gone. So it was like, how do you, how do you create the world's best, you know, stunt show basically on water? And um, so that was one of the more challenging tasks, whereas Jurassic was certainly a challenge. T2 was certainly a challenge, but Waterworld, you know, because we weren't, this film hadn't been released. We weren't sure how it was going to do. Um, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a you know, an, an outlier for us. And interestingly enough, the film never did that well. I know. And the attraction is still running, which I'm in shock about. And again, I think it will run forever uh, because on its own, it's just great. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's phenomenal. Everybody who comes to town here in LA, if we go to Universe, like we're seeing the Waterworld show. <laughs> like if we're doing anything, we're at least seeing the Waterworld well, show. Well, thanks. That's, that's it. I mean, it, it, again, we had a great team and, and you know, we... And even our executive management, you know, we, we'd go through the script and we, we tried to make it as compelling as possible, even if you'd never seen the film, um, which, of course, now, you know, when my kids have gone to see the show, they've still never watched the film. Um, and I think that's why it stands. I, we really tried to hone a very simplistic storyline that people could get and get into the action as quickly as possible, you know, have larger than life villains, have larger than life stunts. We had a big kind of argument I, I did with the president of the park at the time, who is a friend. But, you know, he said, I don't know why you keep putting the stunt people over the audience members. They're going to get wet, you know, and it might be a little bit dangerous. And I said, look, it. I said, here's the situation. When people go to SeaWorld, one of the first things they do when they go into Shamu Stadium is run for the blue seats. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like people yeah. want to feel splashed by Shamu because it makes them feel like they're part of the show. You know, quote unquote, Shamu splashed me. And I did a whole paper on why I thought this was important. And, and the idea that, you know, the more we can immerse people, you know, through, this, through their senses and through the smells and through the water, the more, more impact the show will have. And, of course, the performers loved it because they loved to splash the guests. So he said, what, but, you know, how are people going to know? So we ended up painting the benches and they're still painted to this day, 
you know, certain colors so that they know what, what the wet zone is. <laughs> the chances <basically>. are. <laughs> um, and so I think that, that was one of the, that was one of the fun parts about it. In addition to all the pyro and the plane and everything else was trying to get as much action, you know, into the stadium as possible. It's, it's so much fun. And um, I also, just as an actor, I want to say, I love that that's one of like, I'm trying to think if I can even think of another theme park show that the actors' headshots are out in front of the show. Like yeah, it tells I you like who the actors too. are, that this is a major performance done by these actors and stunt performers. And yeah. I just, I love that. It's like you've just gone to a theater for in, included in the price of your theme park. No, I do too. And, you know, from the opening cast all the way through the cast right now, and I think I saw it, you know, over a year ago when they, they kind of revamped some of the audio system and some of the effects. Um, but I, I love the fact, I mean, it is a tribute. The, the cast does a great job. They take the script. They have a lot of fun with it. Um, it is a very tiring show. You know, it, interestingly enough, I kept getting pressure to limit the amount of people who are on, you know, who are on the, frankly, on the operations payroll to try to make the show work. And so what I, what I spent a lot of time on was um, the stunt performers changing costumes. So everybody who gets killed in the opening scene shows up the next scene later in different <laughs> costumes, you know, so that Smart. they're constantly so, being reworked, you know, yeah. so, so we can maximize, you know, not only, not only their involvement, but, you know, they're try to keep a cap on, on the cost. Yeah, that's a theater trick. It, it is, <laughs> it is, but very talented people and, and an amazing team that, that helped put together that show. So I was just, I was thrilled to be a part of it and, and, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of late nights, and it does get very cold um, up on the top of the up on the top of the hill there because the, mm -hmm. the wind comes across the golf course, you know, by the by the back lot, and you know, kind of whips up onto the top of the hillside there. So it got very cold at night, and I remember we were testing some of the explosions, and um, we had either it was a security guard or somebody from the from the park who just said, "We got to shut this down. You guys got to stop." And I said, well, what, what's going on? I, you know, we, we've been testing this, you know, night after night and there hasn't been, to, there hasn't seemed to be any problems. And they said, do you know whose house it is on the other side of the golf course? And I said, no, I don't. And they said, Roy Disney lives up <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're shaking his windows with these constant explosions because it's carrying across, you know, sort of yeah, the valley yeah. and the golf course. So I'm like, yeah. okay, I, I get it now. I get it. Yeah. You can you can definitely see from the highway the water world uh, effects there. I have to say I have to ask you a question of something that we actually brought up in our uh, episode with Arthur Levine about you know the I have to ask about the gumption. <laughs> I don't know what what the better word is when you're trying to come up with a a concept for a ride. You've got like you were saying you were reading the script to Waterworld and, and Twister and trying to figure out like what should this be and just the I'm trying to think of the right the right word for it that I can say to our audience. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know exactly I know exactly what you mean. The, the intestinal fortitude, yes. the, the determination, the. the... <laughs> to commitment to say here's my idea we're gonna shoot a plane <laughs> through this water effects stunt show towards the audience splash everybody with a plane i mean and just or just we're gonna have a t-rex come and actually be on top of the boat right before people go down this you know 80 foot drop or whatever it is i mean what's it like are there any is it like really just come with all your ideas and hope the money will be there or like it, it is it, it really is and 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 you know obviously you you know i take i take this business very seriously i've spent my whole life in it um and and i think number one you have to be very professional about what you're doing but number two when you go into a brainstorming session i call them sparks sessions you know where there's lots of sparks flying around the room you really have to ban the bazookas. You have to say everything is is okay to put on the wall right now. It's basically on an index card. You know, it's on a colored, you know, post-it. Everything is is fair game in those sessions because you have plenty of time, you know, later on to edit yourself and to pull those back and to budget it out and, and try to challenge yourself. But but when you really want to get into a brainstorm and think out of the box, which you know. I basically started doing that as a kid and have done that my whole life, then you might as well, you might as well swing for the fence. And, and I'll give you one example of that on Twister. You know, I'd, I'd read the script and I knew that John DeBont, you know, he was a very talented cinematographer. 
and he was going to be directing Twister. So we knew that he was a hot talent. It was going to be cool. We knew it had Bill Paxton. Spielberg was producing. It was a joint venture between Amblin and Warner Brothers. And so reading that script, and Helen Hunt was obviously a big star. This is before she got the Academy Award, which she would yeah. get right before the film opened, basically. Um, but, you know, reading it, you just, you really felt it. You could see that it was fun. It was great. And so I, I immediately said, you know, you can't do this attraction without a, a full-scale twister. And, uh, you know, I'm always, always a fan of science, always a fan of, of engineering. My wife is a mechanical engineer. My dad was a mechanical engineer. So I loved working with the engineers, not only at Universal, but in other places, just to brainstorm. And, you know, so I'd go to science centers and look what they were doing. And, you know, I'd seen, and this was very early on when science centers were doing this small tornadoes done with fog in, in a science center. And there was only one or two in, in the U.S. Now almost every science center has one of these. Um, but I saw it and I said, you know, basically, what if we just upscaled this? It doesn't have to be a tornado that can cause damage. It just needs to look like a tornado. <laughs> So, and, and because I used a lot of liquid nitrogen in, in the horror makeup show, as well as in T2-3D, that creates the beautiful big plumes of fog. I thought if we could feed that into the vortex, you know, at a, at a pre-programmed rate, you know, we could probably get a 20, 30 foot, you know, living, breathing tornado and also, you know, light it and use the sound effects and the big powerful sound systems to create something that people, you know, would be really excited by and slightly threatened by. And so, you know, it got together with the engineers. We started working on it. And I'll tell you, we did mock-up after mock-up, and it didn't work. Oh, no. <laughs> and we'd already greenlit the attraction. Oops. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it, it, and, and again, a, a huge tribute to Mike Hightower, who is the project manager, and the engineers who are on this. Um, ultimately, they came up with the right configuration of these massive uh, fans that we had positioned around the facility to create a vortex actually inside of that attraction so the the, the wave of, of, of the movement of air starts very wide and then starts to carry all the way to the middle of the vortex and we realized that just by shifting the fans we could actually move the tornado across the stage and so it was uh, it was a science experiment you know writ large but it had a lot to do with the technology of adjusting the fans to move the tornado then once it once it formed across you know the stage and across the the scene you know, in addition to having rain and fire effects and all the explosions, you know, that we were planning as well. So, yeah, it is about dreaming big and, and aiming, you know, for the fence, as I said. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So obviously these, a lot of these, you know, films are, these are big, big directors and producers, you know, Steven Spielberg. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, especially with like Terminator, you know, T2, 3D, you know, James Cameron, um, you know, for, for those who don't know this, that was, I think at the time, the film that they filmed for the attraction was like the most expensive film made per second or per minute or some crazy number at the time. How, how involved are how involved were Steven and James in those kinds of attractions? So uh, I can I can kind of start with Steven. So he was a creative consultant at, at Universal Florida when we were building the park, you know, for the entire park. So he spent a lot of time with the executives and, and the production designers um, just, you know, doing big reviews of, of what sort of attractions were going to be occurring. Obviously, there were key ones that might be film-based or, or ET that, you know, really, you know, needed more of his attention than others. Mm -hmm. Things like, you know, the Hitchcock Pavilion, you know, he would look at it, he would see how it's coming along, but he wouldn't have to spend as much time on that as he would on ET or on Back to the Future. And so very involved, you know, in it, in it, a very high level of reviews, you know, we built miniatures, we built, you know, um, white models of ride systems and scenery. So that, that sort of typical production process, he would ride, he would come over to Jurassic Park and see, you know, a status review and walk through, but, um, but it, it didn't have to be sort of a daily thing. It was much more at an executive level because obviously, you know, we had his great films as an inspiration with, um, Jim Cameron. It was really interesting because, um, when I, when I, um, picked up the mantle to be the creative director on that, on that attraction. Um, I was handed a, a, a letter that Jim had wrote and he had analyzed every 3D. This is before Avatar, by the way, and before Jim started doing 3D in cinema, he had analyzed every 3D attraction he could see. 
So he went to every theme park and looked at Muppet Vision and looked at, you know, just anything that was going on. Captain EO, which, mm -hmm. you know, was one of the first attractions I worked on as well. Oh. And, uh, and just really analyzed everything that he could about them. And I think because he's a passionate filmmaker, he and, and because the film was going to star, you know, Arnold and, and Linda Hamilton and some of the rest of the cast, I think he's really the only guy who could have made that film. And, and I think that really started a very unique trend of directors and producers wanting to take a more active role in the development of attractions if, in fact, it was based off of, you know, a, a film that was near and dear to their heart, you know, that they had crafted and, and built from scratch. A little bit like my, you know, what I was mentioning with Stephen and E.T. So Jim was, Jim shot that movie. He shot every bit of that movie. Our team would go out on set. You know, I was there when they blew up the big, big sequence, you know, with the, the motorcycle going through. I was out in the desert, at, you know, on that film shoot, um, which was pretty amazing because Arnold walks out of his trailer and, you know, jumps on the motorcycle. So that's all pretty cool. So cool. But then when it, when it came time for us to get into the actual attraction and start programming, um, that, was really, uh, that was really on us. That was really on me and the technical team and, and everybody else who was involved to try to to you know, pull that off of the screen, not only with the 3D effects, but with the sound effects, with the stunts you know, in the theater, um, really trying to make it as cutting edge as possible, programming the seats to move up and down. And you know, there was a, we learned a lot of different things. With, you know, the fans that we added, or the, the fans that you feel in the theater when you know, the hovercraft are coming through, we added those only weeks before we opened the attraction because uh, literally the executive of the park came to me and said, is there anything you need to plus this? And I said, yeah, I want fans. So when these, you know, hovercraft come over and fly in front of you, you know, I want people to feel some wind, like, like they're actually in the scene. And so, um, and pointing back to, you know, what worked on Waterworld and other things. So we installed all of those fans. And interestingly enough, it's the, the show, you know, the, the early previews we did were, were really, really positive and we couldn't have been more happy. But one of the highest rated things that people were mentioning was the smell of gunpowder in the theaters during the <laughs> during the battles. And I'm thinking, how how how, how are people smelling gunpowder? I mean, that we don't have gunpowder, you know, pumped into the theater seats or anything. And it turns out that early on in the show, uh, in the first act, that somebody does fire a, 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 a fake gun. And the smell from that gun obviously travels upwards, the smoke, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fake arm, it's a fake firearm, but it, the smoke from it does, you know, travel up into the rafters. Well, what happens when we turn on the fans is that smoke, which is blows backstage, down. blows out <laughs> down into the audience and they get the smell of gunfire right at the right time when Arnold's battling, you know, during the second act. So it worked. <laughs> oh, perfect. Um, but we had all sorts of kind of interesting things that happened. You know, people jumping out at 3D effects that we didn't expect because we'd seen the film so many times. People screaming in the theater and us, us not realizing why. But, you know, you look at the movie so many times, you forget that the stuff's, you know, popping into the theater. So, um, so no, it was a lot of fun. And I think the attraction's still running at one of the other theme parks. Maybe it's in Japan. I think it's Japan. Yeah, yeah. so it was, but it was really fun to do. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, what Universal's doing with the Bourne, uh, stunt show looks really cool. I mean, I'm very looking forward to seeing that, you know, when, when we're through this pandemic and, and we can get all get back to the parks to see that. So, um, but it was, it was really fun at the time. And, and I think more and more directors and producers really want to get involved in bringing their attractions to life. It, you know, they want to direct the talent. They want to be engaged. They want it to really be an extension of, of the film experience. When you, when you think about you know, so many of these uh, attractions, like we mentioned earlier, you know, that, that obviously Waterworld <laughs> still exists. You know, Jurassic Park is still there, although it's been, uh, you know, updated for the, the more recent movies. What what do you consider a successful attraction, um, you know, beyond like its popularity, beyond its longevity? You know, what, what it, both as a creator, but then also as somebody who, you know, goes and, and experiences a ride or experiences attraction, like what does that what makes it successful to you? Well, it, there's a number of things. I mean, first of all, you know, bringing, bringing things in on time and on budget is really important because you can have an attraction that you think is going to be good and you can overspend on it. And if it's not good or if it costs too much to operate, it's, it's ultimately going to fail. Um, so that's a challenge. I think the other thing is we do and have in the past surveyed all the attractions, even the things that I work on now, Harry Potter, the exhibition, or the Game of Thrones exhibition, you know, different types of things that we're involved in. 
I'm a big believer in, in surveying and sitting with guests and asking them what they like and what they don't like. And if you have the ability to do that a couple of times in the development process, you should. I mean, you know, people, people used to think, oh, it's, a, it's you know, movies, movies are super secretive and they're never tested. I, I know for a fact most major films are tested several times you know, in different markets and different theaters and they survey the audience. And so I really got into a mode of, of doing that with the universal attractions and listening to guests and what they want. And then of course, you just got to try things and see how it works and you can survey them and get some feedback. If it, if it's kind of working, but not really, you might be able to go tweak it. But, but ultimately, you know, I rely back on what's the word of mouth. What are the survey results? I mean, Waterworld still to this day, and I hear this from my friends, even at at Universal today is still the number one rated attraction yeah. many days of the week, even above the Wizarding World, even above you know other things that are going on. And and sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. But it's always been in the, in the highest bracket, which says you know people enjoy it, they're having fun. You know, keep it up, keep keep moving forward. So you do need to rely on testing it and making sure it's working. So and and again, film studios do it as well sometimes. They overdo it and, and water things down. But for the most part, if, you, if you're passionate about it and you care about it, you're going to do everything you can to make it successful. And not just successful in your eyes, but successful, first of all, for the customers and the guests, but also successful for the business because they do have to operate it. They do have to maintain it. They do have to run it you know, 365 days a year. And if they can't operate it, it's going to fail. So that's kind of how I look at it. I, I absolutely want the passion and the fun and the energy to be felt and the guests to, to walk away with that. But I also want it to succeed, you know, from a business standpoint or else you don't get to play anymore. I mean, that <laughs> that must feel pretty good to have Universal be like, yep, still still top of the list. Still, you know, people still love it. It, it is, although it's funny because I, you know, five years after it, I thought they should have just changed it out <laughs> simply because, <laughs> you know, of other brands maybe and, and other opportunities. No. And I would... I would regularly say that to my friends. They're like, when are you going to change that? You know, when are you going to take that out? <laughs> um, so it is, it is kind of fun, but you know, it's, it's also sometimes very hard for me to sit through and watch, you know, things that I've worked <laughs> on just because it brings back a flood of late nights and, you know, sure. <laughs> the good and the bad and the ugly of, of you know, the wartime to, to get it open. I have to ask, are you as sad as we are that King Kong confrontation no longer is? And just in general, like when you're a ride that you worked on shuts down or closes, are are you sad about it? How do you never, feel? Never. No? Never. No, I, I'm more excited about what's up and coming. I think I think the Peter Jackson, you know, tram attraction is really great. The King Kong tram attraction mm -hmm. is really great. And so I always look for, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan, you know, uh, no matter, no matter what any, what, what else happens, you know, I'm a fan at, at the heart. So I would like to see, you know, attractions be replaced and renewed. And I'd like to see people, you know, doing cool things in the industry, you know, and so it was, it was great for me. You know, I was working on creating Harry Potter, the exhibition years before they opened the theme park extension and and a couple of years before they even opened opened the, the warner brothers studio tour in london so i was on the sets you know with the filmmakers picking the props and the costumes you know for that exhibition that we talked about and you know for 10 years that toured to 14 countries you know 20 different venues over 5 million people saw it um, but I was constantly looking at, okay, well, this was fun for me to do, but I'm really excited about what my friends at Universal are going to do with it, you know, and the Forbidden Journey. And I'm excited about what the London Studio Tour is going to do and how they're going to bring it to life, you know. So I, I do enjoy it from a fan perspective and, and want things to be renewed and refreshed, you know, um, because it just, you know, life moves on and gives new opportunities to folks as well. But, you know, I'm, I, I feel very blessed. I have a lot of good friends who work in the industry and, and who I, I, I do keep in contact with um, because I'm actively doing studio tours and developing things as well. And, um, and I'll get a call that says, hey, we're doing this. Come on over. Check it out. And so um, I was excited, really excited. Um, John Corfino, who's a friend of mine from Universal, he did the, he did the redevelopment of Jurassic. And so I just, I, I was a big fan. I just said, go, 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 you know, I, I, and I, I would tell him, I don't like this part. I don't like that part, <laughs> you know, and he's like, I get it. I get it. You know, so I think, I think John and the rest of the Universal Creative D team did an amazing job. I'm, I'm big fans of, of the parks and what they do. And, and so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a cheerleader for what's up and coming and less nostalgic about it. You know, it's, it's, uh, 
it's fun, you know, when I can share it with my kids or share it with relatives, which I've done, you know, in the past. But um, but I, I'm I'm always excited about the future and what's next. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we get I, know, I know there's a nostalgia factor. We, I know. I know. Do you, all right. Well, you have to tell me if you've like kept any props or anything from any of the. Attractions. Oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> I'm a collector myself. Yeah, no, so. I don't. I don't, I mean, I have mostly books. I've got a lot of old notebooks, you know, filled with my old project notes oh, and that's things cool. like that. My drawings. Yeah. yeah, but for the most part, no. I'm, I mean, right now, I'm. I've been very fortunate to be, you know, very tied in with Game of Thrones. Not only the exhibition, but there's a, a studio tour uh, in development for Northern Belfast, and so I'm I'm more focused on on what we've got to open next year, <laughs> than, yeah, you know, than and, the not, past. and not curating a, an old collection. I do have I do have some fun things, and and I think you know I recently gave some of my kids you know some of the attraction T-shirts from the makeup show and and from Halloween Horror Nights, you know, which I was a part of in Hollywood. So. Um, but yeah, it's it's fun, but I, I'm definitely more forward-looking. So, all right, you have to tell us which ones you're the most proud of. <laughs> it's like picking your favorite child. <laughs> yeah, um, oh boy. Probably too hard for me to say. I, I think that um, Jaws was certainly very fun. King Kong was a lot of fun. Again, a lot of work, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears on all of those. It was just great to be part of the opening team for, for Universal. It was terrific, you know, Helping to develop a lot of the, the the expansion, you know, going on at the Universal Park in Hollywood, um, and I got to you know work on a little bit of Islands of Adventure because Jurassic ended up going uh, down to the Islands of Adventure Park. So all of those are, are just certainly great memories. I'm still in close contact with a lot of folks who are doing you know new developments there and and keep up to speed on on you know what the latest trends are. I think that you know I've I've always enjoyed just you know, the overall theme park landscape. I, 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 a couple of years ago, had the opportunity to build um, an exhibition for Disney, which was the 60th anniversary of Disneyland. Mm. Uh, and that was featured at the D23 conference, and it was to celebrate the 60th anniversary. So they said, well, the first thing we've got to do is, is have you to come over to the archives in Imagineering and just go through it. <gasps> oh, jeez. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah. So that was really fun. I, I was just looking at those pictures probably, a, you know, a year or so ago. But I have hundreds and hundreds of pictures of the, you know, of the robotics, you know, console that was used to program Abe Lincoln. and. Oh you know, the, oh the, the, the small sculpts of the ride vehicles for the Haunted Mansion and for Jungle, the Jungle Cruise. So, you know, it was it, it's it's really fun to, you know, live and breathe and kind of work in this environment. And it, I think it, a lot of it does go back to the opportunity to curate a little bit and, and do a little bit of archaeological digging. Even with Game of Thrones, you know, they were still shooting when we arrived on set to start looking at you know what we would populate our exhibition with and then and then ultimately the studio tour with and uh, and it was terrific because amazing amounts of talented people you know constructing sets and the prop masters who were working you know with Jamie's gold hand and you know the the Arya's blades and swords and and working with the armory so it, it does allow a sort of a deep dive into these brands and into these worlds. And so I, I think I find that probably the most fun um, because also, also you get to work with some terrifically passionate people. Right now, as you mentioned in the intro, I'm working with uh, Mina Lima. I'm a partner as well as creative uh, executive for Mina Lima Los Angeles. And Mina Lima is the company that designed all the props and, and all the amazing graphics for the Harry Potter films. So from Marauder's Map, to you know the Weasleys you know shop and all the candy you know the the box for the chocolate frogs to the newspapers everything and so it's it's really fun to work very closely with that team they're they're very deep now on the next Fantastic Beast film um, but it is really fun to live in this world a little bit and to dive deep and and to not only you know see what their creative process is but then how I can take that into my you know, area of expertise and, and add on to that and to help bring it to life for people. That's, I think, probably the most rewarding out of out of everything. Wow. I have a feeling that there might be someone listening who might think to themselves that they want to do what you do. <laughs> and do you have advice for those, let's say, kids or people? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I do. I, I, I have had the opportunity to speak to a lot of colleges, a lot of high schools, uh, and I've, I've spoken with a number of universities, you know, internationally and worldwide. And I think for the most part, I, I definitely strive for people to be 
to, to be creative in, in, a, in an area that they're very comfortable with and to excel in that and practice it, but to also pick up other areas as well. So, you know, I, I grew up, as I said, in a very, you know, in a very supportive family. We were playing music. I was making Super 8 movies. We were building haunted houses. I was constantly drawing, you know, in, in addition to obviously, you know, going to school and, and going to high school and to college and getting through all the, the coursework. And so I think if you're passionate about and you have some talent, you know, mine, mine was definitely centered in film, which required a lot of different skills to come together. But I was interested in all these other areas, including music composition and editing. And, and so I would definitely stress that, you know, if you're comfortable in one creative area, at least be broad enough to work in the other areas or at least understand them so that when you get together with a creative team, you know, you can appreciate what the other people on your team are doing, but also you can have a little bit of knowledge and understand what they're going through. And then ultimately, I think the other area is, you know, that I can't stress enough is, is, is you know, treat it as a business, treat it as your profession. Because a lot of people can say, well, I just want to go do this. And you kind of have to say, well, why do I want to do it? Because I kind of also like to get married one day and kind of maybe <laughs> like to have kids and kind and of sleep. maybe have a house and <laughs> be able to pay for my clothes and a car or whatever it is. So, so you do need to think about how does, the biz, how does a business operate? How do, how do the careers function? What the salaries might be? If you've got the artistic chops and the creative chops and you're willing to develop those and appreciate you know, working in a collaborative team, then also spend you know, not a ton of time, but a fair amount of time on how does the business function? Mm -hmm. How does it make money? How did, you know, the ticket sales work? How does operations take care of things? Because ultimately that, that, that is what this business is about. You know, we all get to, and on my side, we get to create some really fun and wild things, but if you can't operate it, it's not going to work. It's not going to be successful and nobody's going to see it. So you do need to have a heavy respect for, you know, what the operations teams, the technical teams and, and, you know, everybody who, who runs these parks, they do an amazing work, even the marketing departments and the press. There's just a ton of work there that needs to be appreciated because it, it all comes together to, to make an, an attraction successful. That was awesome. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that you got to go to the Walt Disney Archives and just like... <laughs> Ashley <laughs> melted after that. Through, like, we've lost I, her. I would just bring my sleeping bag and be like, okay, <laughs> I live here now, forward my mail think and I think too because Jessica and I you know um we are we are theme park fans but we are you know big Disney fans but we we appreciate so much of what uh what you do Eddie and and your um your the care and the thoughtfulness that has gone into the work that you do because it really is it, you know to us uh these these aren't just rides they're not just attractions they're not just stage shows they are you know things that that we for however long it is whether it's two minutes or 20 minutes we are completely enveloped in this other world and totally part of whatever's happening around us and so to be learning about it from you and understanding uh, the other side um and the just the care and the the thoughtfulness that you put into these things um and into the the guest experience is just is just huge for us um to just hear <laughs> well, thank so. you i appreciate it Yes, it's, it's really fun inspiring. to it's fun to share. I, as I said, I don't look back that often, but it is fun <laughs> every once in a while to look back. Well, Eddie, this has been amazing, but I think it's time to ask you the theme park gets five questions. These are the five questions we ask every special guest who comes on our show. Just right off the top of your head, ready? Question one: What's your favorite Disney park? Oh boy, that would have to be Disneyland, Anaheim. Question two, and I'm guessing we know the answer to this, but I'm interested. Well, there could yeah. be multiple options, yeah. so here we go. Two, favorite non-Disney park? Oh boy, it would probably have to be Universal Studios Hollywood just because it's the original. Yes. That's two <laughs> votes for West Coast, Jess. You're, you're stealing That's all two. of the West Coast votes. Sorry, East Coast girl. <laughs> I'm West Coast now. Here we go. Question three, what's your favorite ride? Oh boy, I, I that one I, I just cannot answer. I, <laughs> I, I really don't know. I, I, well, I will say I will say I grew up, you know, always being fascinated by the haunted mansion and the fact that you know the the way that they use it, the way they the way they transport guests, the way they move guests in the elevator. I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> the way that the the ride building is positioned, I always felt that that was. Um, you know, something really spectacular. Obviously, pirates and other things are, are, are terrific as well. But if I was going to look nostalgically, um, the Haunted Mansion, it was one of the first rides I ever rode. And I was I rode it with my dad. 
um, back in, in Orlando in the early 70s, right after the park had opened. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool. I have to veer off from the five questions really quickly and ask you uh, separately, If are you able to enjoy rides or are you just way too into trying to watch everything and see how everything's done? I think my answer would be I enjoy it because I get to look at everything and see how things are done. So I, I, <laughs> I uh, no, I spend a huge amount of my time going through attractions, visitor experiences, at de designing and developing them, you know, as well as just looking at reference material and, and enjoying what other people produce. So I'm a, I'm a fan and can absolutely enjoy it. Question four, although we may already have heard the answer to this, we like to call it Disney claims to fame. Like you got to go to the CV archives or your <laughs> one of your best friends was Marty Scalar. Like, <laughs> you already have kind of a lot of claims that most, most other people's are like, I rode in a parade once. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you say is like maybe your top Disney claims to fame? Okay, I've got it. Well, that's, that's, that's relatively, I think, easy. So the archives was fun. And, and I was also able to go to the animation archives at one time because I was doing a lot of the development and promotional work for promotions with the Walt Disney Company for a long time. So I got to do some really fun things. Um, but I would say spending time up at Pixar with the filmmakers was oh. really fun and going on tours there and just working with them to help promote films like Up and Ratatouille. Um, was really enjoyable. Another uh, real plus for me was uh, just last year, before everything you know went too crazy with COVID and everything else, I was able to go take the tour of Walt's office, which was really <gasps> a treat on the on the oh, studio. Oh wow, that's amazing! So that was that was really fun as that's well. Very cool. And final question: Any questions for us? Yeah. So so you know, I you, you guys do such a great job with this, and I can't oh. thank you enough. Oh, thank you. I can't thank you enough for just you know carrying carrying the mantle of, of for theme park fans because it is it is a unique I think fandom and and it's a passionate fandom which is terrific. Um, but you guys are just doing an outstanding job, and I guess one of my questions for you would be, you know, what would your what would your dream? Um, nostalgic experience be would it be going to the archives would it be oh my god you know, what, what, what would Gosh. it be <laughs> it's so hard no i think being able to go to the archives i don't think it gets bigger than that because i'm such a vintage theme park fan and collector so to be able to go through you know i love the show um prop culture on disney yes, plus I know it well. yeah. and um you know just thinking about all of that type of stuff that's there and just to be able to go through it all and just see you know movie history and park history of uh you know of the, the things I love so much and I talk about on a daily basis, even <laughs> offline with my friends uh, over text because we're just that big of nerds that we have to talk about these things. So that, <laughs> that, that for me, and I've never been to Disneyland Paris. And so that's my, <laughs> I want to go on a world tour it's and visit. It's a spectacular visit. park as well. I've been there a couple of times. Really, I, really well done. I need to go. I need to go international and see all of the international parks. It's on our bucket list. We're going to, do it no. we're gonna do it <laughs> I doable. so I have I have mixed I, I there's so many things I would I would love I think I don't know the archives is pretty it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> high up there I mean it's just uh, there's just so many things uh that I think I would just like lose my mind over seeing uh in person you know again the archives are kind of spread between a number of different buildings mm -hmm. when we talk about Imagineering or the film archives or even the animation archives, but um, let me dig into some of my emails and maybe I can make an introduction for you guys. What? Oh my gosh, <laughs> that would be. I would. I. I don't even. I. I'm out of words. We're gonna pass out. Certainly, it's a dream that you should hold because it does exist out there, and I think you two would just do a terrific episode on that for sure. <laughs> so, Eddie, as we as we wrap up, you know. You talked a lot about, you know, your work with Mina Lima. Is there anything else you're working on now that you'd love to share with our audience? Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm very immersed in the world of Game of Thrones right now, which is, which is very fun. Um, I, I, when I started working with the exhibition, um, which, which, you know, has toured to multiple countries, um, they were still in production. And so now a, a focus on the studio tour, which will be opening in Northern Ireland, um, has been just really, really fun to do. It's again, it's a lot of work. It's it's uh, 
it's a lot of, you know, the blood, sweat and tears, which we talked about before, you know, and just in regards to pulling something of this size together, but amazing people, amazing staff, HBO has been terrific. Warner Brothers has been terrific. So um, just looking forward to working with um, my creative partner here in LA, a guy named Robin Stapley, who's worked on so many other great, great attractions with me and experiences with me. Um, so we're just looking forward to 2021 and, and getting out there and, and, uh, and finishing off that project and then looking to the future with uh, other fun and exciting projects in development. I cannot wait to see what you do next. That's so <laughs> Thank you very so much. Exciting. I appreciate that. Are you on social media at all? Is there a way that uh, people could follow you or? I am. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. So I, I often will drop gems in there from time to time and, <laughs> and happy to share them. Nice. What's what's your handle? Uh, it's just it's under my name. So you can go to Eddie Newquist on Facebook and you can find me. Eddie, this has been so wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking to us and just letting us nerd out over your entire life experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And thank you guys so much for, for all you do. I think fans, uh, fans everywhere, you know, appreciate it. And I certainly do, too. So thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, and and enjoyed the experience for sure. And to find out more about Ashley and I, check out ThemeParkettes.com. You can find us on Instagram at TheThemeParkettes. My personal Instagram is at actor Jessica Gardner. And I can be found at HappyGoAshley. We are Jessica and Ashley, the Theme Parkettes. And hey, if you see us sitting in the splash zone at Waterworld, come up to us and say hi. Remember, you can sit with us. Thanks, everybody. And thanks, Eddie. Thank you so much. Wow! <laughs>